Hi, I'm David Allen Lambert, and welcome to Virtual Historians. I'm here with my colleague and partner in crime, Terry O'Connell, as we bring another exciting adventure in how virtual reality and history are melded together to give you a new eye on history. You know, for a long time, since the late 1990s, I've known of the, our next guest, Anthony Murphy, has done so much with discoveries of Neolithic archaeology. And what you may not know about me is I'm a life member of the Massachusetts Archaeological Society, and I dig archaeology. I know, bad pun. But for you young folks out there who are interested in archaeology, what is being discovered even to this day in Ireland is amazing. So we are going across the pond right now to talk to our new friend, Anthony Murphy, and welcome. Thank you very much for having me along. It's a great pleasure to be here. Well, it's, it's a great pleasure for us to introduce everybody about amazing Facebook page that you have and the amount of videos, how on earth you have all the hours to put so much great content together. It's we Terry and I have trouble just trying to get together to put together the content for this show, but it's it's amazing. It's really amazing. And I think that a lot of people who kind of follow what I tweet out and Terry tweets out will probably know about this recent discovery you found using a drone. Could you tell us a little bit? Yeah, I should probably tell you how I found it. I mean, my major discoveries in archaeology here in Ireland using drones are full of synchronicity and serendipity. And that was the case again recently, only a few weeks ago, actually. Uh, a rare visitor came into the River Boyne in the form of a bottlenose dolphin. They're not normally seen in rivers, more so offshore. And... Uh, caused a little bit of a stir. Lots of people here locally were going down to the river to take pictures and get a look at this dolphin, which was later identified as a dolphin called Kevin Costner. Believe it or not, the, the people who monitor the dolphins of the Shannon Estuary, where Kevin is normally resided, which is in the southwest of the country, called him Kevin Costner. They spotted him 35 years ago, something around that. And apparently at that time, he was very protective of the females. And this was a time when the movie The Bodyguard was uh, popular. Oh, and so they, right. they called him Kevin Costner because he was looking after the ladies. <laughs> well, well, Kevin visited Drogheda and eventually I decided, do you know what, Anthony, it'd be a great idea to go down to the river with the drone and see if you can get aerial photography or video of the dolphin. <laughs> but by the time I actually got down there, which was a Sunday evening, he had given me the slip. He had disappeared and he hasn't been seen since, by the way. So presumably he's back out at sea. Maybe he's heading back down to the Shannon. Yep. But uh, on that evening, while flying the drone, I happened to arrive at low tide and spotted what you might call a couple of anomalies in the river. And so I took it on myself to go back the next evening at low tide. And when I did, that's when I spotted what I would call log boat number one in the water. I mean, you know, when you have a reasonably good knowledge of archaeology, as I'd, I'm an enthusiast, so I'm not a professional or trained archaeologist. I was aware, having published a story about it on my blog on Mythical Ireland in 2016, there was a log boat found not too far upriver from where I spotted this one. And it was later dated to the Neolithic. It's as old as the great monuments of Brunabonia, Newgrange, Nowth and Douth. And so I spotted this thing in the river and I said, look, that's not a tree. That, that definitely looks like something man-made, a sort of rectangular profile. Mm -hmm. And I can fairly quickly see that there were like thin raised edges on it on either side, parallel, you know. So when I took the drone down closer to it, I said, hmm, that's definitely, that has the look of 
perhaps a dugout boat or a, a log boat, we might call it. So sure. when I got home, I sent the images to two archaeologist friends, Dr. Stephen Davis of University College Dublin and a good friend of mine, Geraldine Stout of the National Monument Service. And Steve said, look, that looks like a, a dugout boat. But do you mind if I send these images on to some other specialists? I said, no problem. And Geraldine came back and said, look, that's definitely a dugout boat. Well done. And so within a short time, it was confirmed that it was a dugout boat. And that was the first of three finds in that stretch of the river. Sure. That's amazing. Now, from what I've read, the date of these, they look like the ones you recently found are from the medieval era. Is that what they're speculating? Yeah. Shortly after finding logboat number two close by, I contacted, well, it was Stephen Davis who forwarded my email to a specialist, Dr. Niall Gregory, who's an archaeologist who literally his whole life has been dedicated to the study of these craft. And one of the first things that Niall told me was that log boats in Ireland are notoriously difficult to date. And that's because, believe it or not, dugout boats is the official terminology that the archaeologists use. Mm -hmm. Dugout canoes were in use in this country for about 7,000 years, from about 5,500 BC right. until about 1800 AD. Wow. And during that length of time, the design of the vessels changed very, very little. Because basically, once you find an effective design and you hollow out the trunk of a tree to right. form a boat, that design sticks, as it were. So it's very difficult to look at a boat and say, yes, that's Neolithic. I mean, if we look at a monument, you know, if it's a henge, we know it's late Neolithic. If it's a cairn, we know it's probably Stone Age, maybe Bronze Age. If it's a ring fort, we know it's medieval. Not so with the dugout boats. But from initial examination, it would appear that these belong to the medieval period because of certain characteristics but that can't be proven until such time as carbon dating takes place and that's still a very wide range of dates so medieval it covers from about 400 AD until about 1650 AD so it's still a huge amount of time you, you know and it's amazing to think because I know how much deforestation occurred in Europe that you think of a log this size that would have had to been I've seen uh, how these are usually made as they burn it and then they chop it and they burn it and they chop it and carve it in, at least the ones for the Native American logboats here in North America. Uh, they will set a fire in it and then they will chip away what's burned. I wonder with the dendrochronology on the wood being submerged, if that causes part of a problem with the dating or if it's just any number of factors of minerals that have gotten into it because it's been in this, this, the uh, silt for so long. I'm not sure how, den how much dendrochronology can help. I understand that, you know, it depends on which part of the tree. It's usually, from what I understand, from what Dr. Gregory tells me, it's usually the bottom part of the tree. So towards the root end of the tree. And it depends on how the grain presents. Because I had the, the foremost specialist on the island of Ireland in relation to dendrochronology is Dr. Mike Bailey of Queen's mm -hmm. University, Belfast. And I had him on a, a live stream recently and had a fascinating discussion with him. And what's incredible there is that there's a record, a complete tree ring record for Ireland that spans at least 5,000 years. And we can identify the age of anything that's made from oak just by comparing its tree rings with the known record, which I think is absolutely fascinating, remarkable. But the thing is, as you know, the survivability of oak and other wood in the ground is a short-term thing. 
you know. So one of the things that I found was that the massive henge near Newgrange, which we call Drone Henge. It, it, it likely consisted of, on the outer rings, you know, vast numbers of posts, probably made from oak, and nothing remains of those because they're completely disintegrated over time. And yet, in the bed of the River Boyne, there are boats made from the same material which has sur survived an equal amount of time. Uh, I think dendrochronology may help, but I think ultimately the carbon dating is the key to telling us exactly how old they are. It, it really is with wood, with water. I mean, if you get a boggy area, you tend to find, I know there has been recent archaeological finds in near Switzerland that they found stilt houses that probably date from medieval time frame, and the stilts are still in the silt, only 12 feet below the water level. And they're finding, yeah. you know, artifacts as well. And it's been there for probably a millennia. So going back to when I first started seeing your videos and whatnot, which are amazing. And of course, Terry and I will have the links to everything and how to get in touch with you. And I'll tell you, if I, I need to move some books around on my bookshelf because I got to get a couple of your books and get them signed <laughs> too. The idea of books, you know, you've written how many now? Eight, is it? I've published eight books and I'm working on two more. At the moment, I'm working on two more, but there'll be more. Eight, eight is the total so far, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, with your adventures with drones, I mean, obviously you found the Neolithic uh, cairns earlier. Can you tell us about those? I mean, and of course, there's the link to your videos that they can find out more information. But I, I, I think that's fascinating. Yeah, well, I suppose I hit the jackpot in 2018. I, I bought my first drone in 2017. And I hit the jackpot in the summer of 2018, uh, a prolonged summer drought, which is unusual for Ireland because we get so much rain here. It's such a, a humid and wet climate. Mm -hmm. That's why Ireland is so verdant and why it's called uh, the Emerald Isle, 40 shades of green. And there literally are 40, at least 40 shades because everything's kept well watered, you know. Yes. But in the summer of 2018, we had a prolonged drought uh, at Brunibonia and in a field close to Newgrange, only about 750 metres away, I, I spotted uh, what I can only describe as what looked like a giant circular imprint in the crops. And that later transpired to be probably the subterranean remnants of a type of monument that archaeologists refer to as a henge. Now, your listeners or your viewers may be well familiar with Stonehenge in England, which is probably the most famous henge, mm -hmm. but Stonehenge is an atypical henge um, mm -hmm. because of its uh, complex design. The henge that we found, which quickly became dubbed drone henge by the media, measures about 520 feet in diameter, wow. uh, more than 150 meters in diameter. And the fascinating thing, I was flying with a friend, Ken Williams, who's another photographer and avid archeological enthusiast, was that we couldn't believe that something this huge lay undiscovered, hidden in the landscape for so long. You know, especially when you consider that Brunibonia is a World Heritage Site, that generations of archaeologists from all around the world have been studying the landscape and nobody knew it was there. And of course, exactly. we now know that that's because it was what we call an impermanent structure. It's another atypical henge. Some of the henges at, at Brunibonia are made from vast um, earthen banks. And so it's very easy to see them. You can see them from the ground because they present as uh, embanked enclosures, as it were. A drone henge, it would appear, 
had all but vanished from the surface of the earth because it was made from timber and dug out trenches or pits in the earth. And so when they fill in over time, all you get left with is a flat field, which is amazing when you think about it. That's amazing. So do they conduct any archaeological surveys around it or test pits to see if they found any? No, there hasn't been any sort of physical digging or excavation of the site as of yet. And, and I suppose there are a number of reasons for that. But I mean, principally, the, the main reason is that it's on a working farm. It's part of Newgrange Farm. And as we speak, there's actually a crop of barley growing on that field. Now, uh, the process of ploughing is not as destructive as people would think. It really only penetrates about nine inches, maximum 12 inches of soil. Mm-hmm. And so that, that top foot of soil, as it were, has been turned over constantly over the last number of generations since farming, uh, intensive farming began in the Boyne Valley. But beneath that plough zone, uh, there are probably uh, interesting remnants, uh, which if dug, would perhaps, first of all, reveal what, what we suspect anyway, which is the date of it. And, mm-hmm. and this structure looks like it belongs to what we might call the late Neolithic. And that's a period of time roughly from about 2900 BC until about 2500 BC, give or take 50 sure. years. And it's a period after the great monuments, the passage tombs, the cairns of Newgrange, Nowth and Douth and the other mounds, had, that phase had finished and it seems as if the focus had changed from, you know, exclusive. Like, I know that Newgrange, Nowth and Douth look like huge monuments, and they are, of course. Mm-hmm. But the, the internal parts of them, the chambers and the passages, are very tight and, and confined, not designed for crowds of people. The crowds of people at Newgrange, whatever took place there in the Neolithic, would have been outside the monument and the select few inside. And it seems right. that... They changed their tack, as it were. They changed their their view of things and started creating these monumental structures uh, that looked to be what we might call open-air structures. The the closest parallels would be to sports stadiums or, you know, rock stadia where you might go and view a concert or even something like a coliseum, you know. The idea being that whatever took place in the interior might have been watched by huge crowds of people, some sort of ceremonial or, or, or ritual structure, you know? That's amazing. You know, and it's and it's sad to think, I know in one of your videos, you were showing about a lot of the burial cairns that the, the roofs are gone, but as, you know, centuries and millennia farmers, well, that stone would be good on my wall or this stone would be good as a doorstep. So many of them have been pillaged probably for thousands of years, I would think, or maybe yeah. hundreds of years. Yes. It's an incredible thing that we have, for instance, we have in Ireland, we have at least 300 known passage tombs. So these are all around five to five and a half thousand years old, maybe a little bit older in one or two cases. And that's probably a fraction of what was there. We know that a lot of monuments were destroyed. We have uh, historical records, for instance, a giant henge near Dundalk in County Louth, which has been dubbed Ireland's Stonehenge, was there pretty much intact in 1748 uh, as detailed by an antiquarian at the the time Thomas Wright Mm -hmm. but by about a century and a half later it had been completely obliterated and removed from the landscape such that the historians of the early 1900s couldn't find it 
So that's a tragedy. But at the same time, I suppose we have to count ourselves lucky that we do have these great treasures. I mean, the complex of Brunabonia, we have the megalithic complex at Loch Crew, we have the megalithic complexes at Carrowmore and Carrowkeel and Sligo, and other groups around the country which don't present in the same sort of uh, numbers or perhaps lavishness. It saddens me on the one hand that we've lost so much, but on the other hand, I suppose we have a lot to be thankful for. It really is. And, you know, my main profession is I'm a genealogist and my paternal line, even though Lambert doesn't sound like an Irish name, we came over from Ireland in 1790s in Nova Scotia. And, you know, I think back on the limits of genealogy and the limits of DNA being fractional that autosomal only goes back to your fifth great grandparents percentage wise. And then you can do your Y DNA, which can go back to haplogroups into 30,000 years ago across Europe, et cetera. To think that maybe one of these cairns bore the remains of one of my ancestors or some collateral relative, it, it's just, it's fascinating. And I think that's where archaeology for me, and this is why I try to influence the young, is that once you get involved in your own genealogy, history, or either on a local level or on an international level, or archaeology, because then you figure that your family somehow fit into the context of that, so it makes it quite amazing and having been a family a person whose last family member lived in Ireland was in 1823 up in Donegal my great-great-grandmother came over as a young girl anytime that any archaeology is found in Donegal or in Waterford or in Tipperary it's not like I'm looking for an ancestor to pop up but you have that just innate curiosity and I mean you're walking in the steps of your ancestors so when you walk into a cairn you must have some really amazing feeling that what once was there well, I do think, yeah, one thing that I've remarked about quite often in my written work is how it's amazing that you can be in the same space that somebody stood 5,000 years ago. Yeah, Even that gets you, you know, it grabs you by the shirt collar and drags you in and, you know, you get the quiver of excitement and the hair raises up on the back of your neck. Yeah. And of course, we have all sorts of romantic ideals about far off ancestors living lives on the green topped hills of Ireland long ago. Now, for generations, archaeologists told us that the Irish people are descended from the Mesolithic people. These would be pre-Newgrange, pre the arrival of farming, sure. from a time before the domestication or the introduction into Ireland of cattle and sheep and horses. A time going all the way back to about around seven or 8,000 uh, BC sure. when the first people arrived here. Now, however, I should tell you, and I don't mean to sort of burst your bubble at oh, all. Oh, no, 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 no. But G uh, genetics now is the area sh where the largest leaps forward in what we know about the past are occurring, especially in the Irish uh, archaeological sphere. So in the past 10 years, for instance, 10 years ago, even, I wrote in Newgrange Monument to Immortality, my book about Newgrange. I wrote about this, that we're all descended from the, the Mesolithic people. And isn't that brilliant, you know? Mm -hmm. And since then, it has been proven that, in fact, that's not true, because <laughs> there was a very major <laughs> influx of people in the, that time period between what we call the Neolithic and the Bronze Age, when there was a very large influx of people. So... The people about Newgrange, Nowth and Douth, were shorter, darker skinned, darker haired uh, people. And we know that they were replaced by a taller, fairer skinned people. Um, the, the people who brought farming to Ireland in the Neolithic 
originally came from what we might call uh, Asia Minor or what we call today Turkey, Anatolia. Mm -hmm. That farming civilization moved across Europe to the West. And really, Ireland was probably the last place where farming was introduced. But then there was a later arrival of people from, you know, the Bronze Age, and they have their origins in the Iberian Peninsula, moved out into Europe and then across West. And they introduced a whole load of different practices in terms of, well, they introduced metallurgy and they built different types of monuments and they buried their dead in a different way. And we're actually largely descended from that arrival. And it, it has shown, especially in Britain, where there's more extensive sort of DNA data available. And I think that's changing in Ireland because all the time now there are more DNA work being done on ancient remains. But the uh, the Neolithic population suffered some sort of fairly substantial collapse. And in fact, most of the modern Irish population traces its origins, its genetic origins to the Bronze Age. So those of us who stand at Newgrange and think about perhaps this was built by a long distant ancestor, well, that that reality appears to be a little bit more remote now, uh, according to the science. Well, bursting my bubble and educating me all in the same is perfectly fine with me. So that's okay. But I, it's, it's just amazing, though. I mean, when you are still standing in something that has stood the test of time for so long, it's like stand, standing... I consider these, you know, these cairns, the burial tombs that are found in ancient Egypt that people are always, oh, a new tomb was found in Egypt. And that's like, well, that's great. But these cairns, have they been devoid of most of the remains for many, many years? Were most of them dug up and pillaged? Oh, I mean, not necessarily. So in some cases. So for instance, at Brunabonia, the excavations of Newgrange, which began in 1963 and continued into the 1980s, revealed quite a lot of uh, fragmented and mostly cremated remains in the chamber and these would all be fragmented to the extent that you know there were no major portions of the human body so we know now I think it's accepted by archaeologists that there was some sort of process involved I briefly mentioned that in my mythical Ireland book the process of breaking down the dead dismembering and cremating and basically perhaps sort of grinding down into small parts part of their death ritual as it were the problem that we have so for instance at Loch Crewe where Eugene Conwell did excavations in the 1860s in some cairns he just stripped out everything and that wasn't carefully recorded R.A.S. McAllister's excavations at Carrow Keel in 1911, he actually kept the bones. They were lost for a long time and found again in the past decade. And they were examined genetically and, and, and through carbon dating. And so in some cases, we have very definitive results, as it were. And in other cases, we don't. The most fascinating revelation, I think, of the past five years has probably been the one of the few uncremated pieces of bone at Newgrange was was what's called a petrous bone, a petrous temporal bone, which is a part of the skull, I believe it's sort of behind the ear, Mm -hmm. which is a really dense bone. In other words, its survivability is really good. They carried out DNA testing on that piece of of skull bone. found that it belonged to a, a young male whose parents were first degree relatives. In other words, his parents were either brother and sister or mother and son, father and daughter, right, a right. very close relationship. And of course, you could st- extrapolate all sorts of theoretical 
ideas from that sure, about sure. dynastic builders of Newgrange. A little bit like the Egyptians and, and many other cultures where this sort of thing was the norm. And I tell you what, that has revolutionized our understanding of Newgrange and, and the ancient monuments to the extent that my publisher recently said, you know, your Newgrange book is going to be out of print soon uh, for the second time it was reprinted. And he said, do you want to do a reprint or do you want to revise? And I said, I'm going to have to revise it quite substantially because the information we've gleaned that was published in 2012 yeah and so much has changed in that period of time that in fact that book will need to be completely reworked it's really exciting though when you can find that something is i mean i I always think of archaeology as like wet cement nothing is ever concrete because there's so much room for discoveries that's the analogy i think works well you're yes archaeology is a forensic science Mm -hmm. and stratigraphy and layers and the retrieval of dateable organic material which can be animal or plant material i mean there are specialists in irish archaeology who deal entirely with seeds and pollen and insects i mean it really is incredible on the other hand archaeology isn't always able to build a substantial picture about what a society was like from physical remains I mean, and you know, the conundrum is the same. I mean, there are many things discarded in modern landfill dumps in Ireland that in future generations, if you were far removed and you didn't know what they were for, I mean, they're going to present quite a puzzle to the archaeologists of the future, you know? I mean, I'm trying to get a, a handle on, you know, what the people were like, what the religious practices were like is a very difficult task. They manage quite well, I think. But uh, my own opinion is that you have to look to the mythology as well to help you sort of unravel a, a sort of a wider picture of it, you know. Now, as the summer progresses in Ireland, do you have any drone adventures that you're looking to partake in? They go anywhere? Well, as a result, I've gained something of a bit of notoriety, as you can probably imagine. I have been invited to participate in a couple of archaeological digs that are taking place in the summer where aerial reconnaissance might be of benefit. Look, we're at the point in time now where archaeologists are realizing that drones have a huge role to play in what they do. Because a generation ago, you had to hire aircraft. There were two or three distinguished specialists in the field of archaeological aerial reconnaissance, the late Leo Swan, for instance, very well known name. And Leo would get up in a plane and, you know, would hang out the window with the camera, basically picturing everything. (laughs) And the wonderful thing about drones is it's an inexpensive technology. Well, barring the initial investment in in, in the physical drone. I mean, to hire a plane costs money every time you hire it right once you buy the drone you can fly it any time you like providing you fly it within the regulations and i think it's because you know a helicopter maybe is better way to get pictures probably even more expensive to be honest uh, than than an airplane with an airplane you're whizz- whizzing past it at speed you're generally flying at around a thousand to fifteen hundred or two thousand feet drones in ireland the maximum altitude you can fly at is 400 feet you're closer yeah, okay. to the ground and because drones are gps equipped if you don't touch the controls they just hover there and so you get these really steady images of what's 
on the ground. And because of the discoveries of the past five years, archaeologists are now realizing these are an, an essential item in our toolkit, which is brilliant. But because they're so prevalent in non-specialists, with non-specialists, in other words, hobby drone flyers who are ubiquitous, mm -hmm. there have been a significant number of discoveries made in the past few years by what you might call citizen archaeologists or non-specialists like myself. So, I mean, there's so much potential. Uh, now, it's done a lot of rain. We had a spring drought here. So drought is becoming an issue. Uh, which is a strange thing for Ireland. So maybe there's a climate change discussion going on there in the background. We had a drought in the spring of last year. We had a drought in the spring of this year. And of course, we had the summer drought in 2018. Now, if we were to sort of experience another period of prolonged drought, there, there certainly would be an opportunity there for the hobby flyer to go and look at the local crop fields and see what might be hidden there that hasn't been seen yet, you know? Well, I really appreciate you for taking the time this morning uh in the afternoon for you to talk with us because i mean one it's in the news i mean and, and i'm grateful that you had the time for us for this if people want to get a hold of you what's the best way i mean your website facebook to just to learn more to find out about your books Oh, yeah. Well, the principal places where you can learn more. I mean, the website is quite comprehensive. That's mythicalireland.com. Especially the blog. The blog is the part of the website that gets updated most often. There's a huge number of articles on the blog about Drone Henge and about the log boats. Uh, if you need to contact me, probably the best way to contact me is by email, which is mythicalireland at gmail.com. And then please, by all means, delve into the social media sites, especially the Facebook page, that's facebook.com forward slash mythical Ireland and the YouTube channel. There are literally hundreds and hundreds of hours of videos on the YouTube channel. <laughs> okay. I just want to tell you that all of my hours of watching stupid television have changed you now watching your videos because one, you've got an amazing speaking voice. It's very easy to listen to. And I just like, I just want to go to the next chapter. So mythical Ireland is going to be on my book order form this week. And I'll probably have to get more of your books because you're really touching upon something. I've had a passion on, of course, Irish history, but ancient Irish history. And I really wish you well. And I'm sure Terry probably has some questions and I've been occupying the mic far too long. So Terry, go ahead. You know what I've learned? I just kind of tabulate everything I have to say for my one spot. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll start with, I've been a fan of your Mythical Ireland page probably since before the Drone Henge. So I've been watching for a long time. And I thought that was amazing until I saw the boats and I was like, it just kind of tops it. So I just can't wait to see what that next big thing is. Second thing, so we talked a little bit about David's family line. So mine left post-famine and I've been back and I've walked their steps. I've been to the townland. I've been to where we pretty much are sure they left out of. And it is very, like you said, it kind of grabs you by the shirt. I sat at that dock and just kind of thought about all the people that kind of left through there and probably never returned home. Mm -hmm. The next thing we talked about where the Irish people really came from. And you talked about the Iberian Peninsula. And I have to tell you that my original DNA results showed that. 
So I thought that was really cool. You know, Ancestry keeps updating and I believe it's gone now, but it was there for years and years and years, like this little piece from the Iberian Peninsula. So I think doing these DNA tests really does kind of break down, even if it's just that five generations um, that David talked about, it's, it's an important five generations to really get a glimpse of who your people were, where they were from. Uh, for me, I come from very blended, in America, we like to say melting pot family. I'm pretty much a lot of different heritages, but the Irish is the ones that have always spoken to me. I mean, I've been to Ireland, I think three times. And if you ask my husband where I wanna go next, the answer is always Ireland. <laughs> I can't get enough. So to me, it's home. I would like to stay. <laughs> Ireland seems to have that effect on people, especially those who have you know, that genetic heritage. And it's been a fascinating journey for me because I've learned so much in the past 20 or so years that when I was younger, I might have believed that the Irish were like a race apart, but we now know that's not the case. And I think it's more a case of what living on this island does to you, actually. It's the effect that it has on you that, that I think makes you Irish, more so than that genetic. I, I think people can trace the genetics down rabbit holes. And the, the truth is here that Ireland being an island, we, you know, we didn't miraculously spring up a population of our own sometime in the distant past. All of our origins uh, are from beyond the shores. And of course, that's exemplified in the mythology, which speaks about the waves of invasions. I've often said that, you know, while I consider myself Irish, I, I probably suspect that if, if I was to get a, a DNA test done, I'd I might I might be surprised. Maybe I'll find Viking DNA in my lineage. Maybe I'll find Norman DNA in my lineage, mm -hmm. which wouldn't be at all surprising, given the, the prevalence of Norman surnames in modern Ireland. Maybe I might even find English links. Who knows? But it's just something to do with the power that this place has on you. There's mm -hmm. a there there is a unique feeling of connection with earth in Ireland that that I think is there in the mythology it's there in the archaeology the archaeological sites are so numerous that it seems that you know people set out these sacred areas of land and and, and put enclosures on them and monuments and stones and, and cairns and all sorts of uh, structures and it seems that in doing so we were declaring you know we really really feel something very special about this place on the earth and it's a tragedy that you know not too long ago so many people had to leave this place and as you say some of them were never able to return because those were different times before long before uh, flight was introduced yeah. and before you could just book a ticket and go home again as it were and that is that is part of the story and it is it is tragic and it is sad that so many expats and as you say they have this sort of visceral feeling of connection and they can probably never sort of properly describe it and put it into words and so i consider myself very very lucky very blessed very fortunate privileged actually to be in the position of not only living here but being able to communicate some of that into that wider community of either people of Irish heritage or people who just have a natural affinity with the place. And I understand it. I completely understand it. And uh, as I say, it's a great honor and a great joy and a great privilege to share that with people around the world.
I think I found with those that are Irish heritage here in America, it's we feel lost. We're here. We've been here for generations, but that's not where we were for millennia or you know hundreds of years mm-hmm. and whatnot. And I think that there is a draw to go back home. I think mm-hmm. it's kind of to go to where your ancestors came from and to walk on those fields and to visit the places that your ancestors were like Terry has. Unfortunately for my Lamberts and the we don't even know the village because of the record loss in you know, the 1700s. I know he came from there. Do I know exactly the village? Not yet. But you know, DNA, like a one Y DNA match, and that's helped. But I do love Ireland. And I really also love what you're doing and is bringing a level of Irish history and discovery to the new generation of those that like, are interested in social media and virtual reality. It's not just a dry book reading that we had 30, 40 years ago that you read journals and whatnot. People are entertained by the discoveries. They're tweeting things out. They're engaging. So in final, is there any advice you have for the young budding archaeological enthusiast who wants to go out and get a drone and become another Anthony Murphy here in the States or anywhere on the globe? Well, the advice would be very simple, would be, yeah, just to go for it. Because um, as I and others have demonstrated, it's possible to, as it were, hit that jackpot. You know, if you're interested and you're passionate. Uh, We're lucky in Ireland in that uh, at the beginning of this year, the laws around drones, which weren't very restrictive, Mm -hmm. weren't hugely restrictive. I mean, you can't fly in in restricted airspace and and, and and you have to fly safely of course but we're now under European law and you know it, it's we've gone very common sense with our uh, regulations so the smaller your drone is and the lighter it is basically the more you can do and we have privacy laws and data protection laws around you know the the, the, the video and photography of people close up and all of that but mm-hmm. drones don't usually have that kind of issue because you're flying up in the air at a distance with a wide angle lens perfect for spotting those things in the landscape that you know you can't you literally can't see from the ground drone hinge uh, and there's a, a photograph of it on the back of the back cover of my book about drone hinge i mean drone hinge is a huge structure and just to give you an idea those those parallel pairs of lines are there the tractor tram lines running up between the crop yeah 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 and the farmer told me uh, immediately after the discovery that he walked in the field and he couldn't see any yeah. sign of it whatsoever i should i should also just very briefly i wanted to show you sure that's that that is the drone that found oh. the that is the and just just to give you an idea the technology that's involved that's the phantom three advanced which uh, three or four years ago was was quite a, a a good drone but they're getting smaller and lighter and yet yeah. they're getting better because the one that discovered the log boats is the dji mini 2 and it's a wow. lot smaller Gosh. you know and, and actually when when you fold it up like literally it fits in the palm of your hand you know wow. that is amazing that's a dji, DJI mini. mini 2 and, and in Europe, I'm not sure what the law is like in the States. In Europe, this is a sub 250 gram drone. It weighs, I think it's 241 grams. So you, you, you can do more with this than you can do with the heavier drones. 
and and they're inexpensive relatively speaking yeah so yeah the the advice would be to fly and fly often and enjoy it if you're in doubt about whether you should be flying in an area or not make sure well first and foremost you have to actually do training and you have to have a a drone registration operation number from the irish aviation authority before you can fly a drone but it's basic it's basic training and it's common sense stuff go and do it and enjoy it and go fly and who knows what you might find you know well, I know that you're going to find lots more things. And I know I joined Terry in thanking you for your time today. But will you come back? Because we want you on again. This has been great. I'd love to. Excellent. Excellent. Mm. Me in. Well, as we sign off, once again, I just want to say uh, thank you to Anthony Murphy and uh, Mythical Ireland and all he is doing both between his blog and his discoveries and makes me want to go out and buy a drone this afternoon. And please do look at his website. And in fact, if you need a good summer reading book, I'm sure any of his eight books will satisfy your needs for further curiosity. And, you know, and check out his videos. They're great. So thank you again. And uh, signing off from Virtual Historians, I'm David Allen Lambert. And of course, with my partner in crime, Terry O'Connell. Look forward to seeing you on our next time. Until then, we're virtually yours. For those of you watching on YouTube, remember you can also find us on the audio podcast of your choice. Currently, we can be found on Anchor, Breaker, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. And for those of you listening on audio, remember you can always find the full video recording on our YouTube channel. And if you like this episode, please feel free to leave a comment on the website or on YouTube. As always, you can find us at virtualhistorians.com. You can email us at info at virtualhistorians.com. And we ask that you please like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you.